This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by Itachi Energy. If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out our podcast, Power Pulse, where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems. Visit us at itachienergy.com backslash powerpulse. Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. And on today's episode, we have what you might call a think tank showdown. Joining me, we have representatives of two of the leading policy research organizations in Washington, D.C. In the pink corner, we are welcoming back Joseph Mikert, who's the director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hi, Joseph. Thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you were last uh, with us back in June, and of course, we talked a lot about the energy crisis in Europe. I guess, presumably, that will have continued to dominate your life for the past four months? Yeah, it's hard to ignore it. The way in which this immediate uh, restriction on energy access has affected Europe and is now reverberating on, around the world is, I think, maybe more profound than a lot of listeners might realize because we're so, you know, with a principally U.S. audience, we're isolated from a lot of these challenges or we feel them secondarily. But I think we're going to see this period as a real inflection point for how energy security is thought about amidst energy transition. And I think it will have uh, really meaningful impacts on all the stuff we're set to see over the next couple of years, climate negotiations, energy system planning, and the rise of geopolitics. Yeah, absolutely. I, I entirely agree with that. And certainly some of the, uh, the latest developments in the energy crisis are going to be something we'll be talking about later on. Also then, in I guess what we're calling for the purposes of this show, the gold corner, we have uh, a newcomer to the show. We have Samantha Gross appearing with us for the first time. She is the director of the Energy Security and Climate Initiative at the Brookings Institution. Samantha, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So as I say, your first time on the show, for the benefit of uh, listeners who might not know you and might not know the Brookings Institution in particular, can you talk a little bit about it? What, what does the institution do? And why is it interested in energy and climate? Sure. Brookings is one of the oldest think tanks in Washington, um, more than 100 years old. We focus, we're a nonpartisan institution, and we focus on policy questions facing the world and the United States. I'm on the foreign policy team, and clearly I'm biased, but I think that energy geopolitics and the energy transition is one of the most important issues that, that humankind faces right now. So there's no question that my institution should think about it and that it, it, that it matters a lot for U.S. policy and foreign policy. And tell us a little bit about your career. How did you get into the energy business and the energy and climate business, I suppose? And also, how did you get to Brookings? What was the path that led you there? an oddball for a Brookings scholar in that I, I've been around the block a few times. I started my career as an engineer. I have degrees in chemical and environmental engineering, and I got into the energy business through refining. I worked a lot on environmental problems facing some refineries on the West Coast. Then I went back to business school and I moved to Washington and got into the policy community. I've been with Brookings about six years, and um, I'm really enjoying the, the freedom that the think tank world gives you to um, work on what you want and say what you want, which I'm looking forward to today. Absolutely. And thanks very much for joining us today. Very much looking forward to our discussion. So I want to take advantage of having two leading policy experts on the program today to talk about some policy issues in quite a bit of detail. Going to come on to talk about the energy crisis a bit later on and some of the latest developments there. But I wanted to start off by thinking about 
a huge issue in energy policy and climate policy, which is the UNFCCC process, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which has, I think it's fair to say, been the sort of the dominant force, certainly since the Paris Agreement of 2015, it's been the dominant force in shaping the way a lot of people have thought about energy policy worldwide, probably up until the latest crisis, which has then thrown a lot of those ideas up into the air again. That UNFCCC process includes these annual meetings known as COPs, COP standing for Conference of the Parties. Last one was COP26 in Glasgow last year, and we're now heading for another one, COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, which is now very soon, only about a month away. And I'm interested in discussing what's on the agenda for that meeting, what we think is going to happen, and what, in particular, I guess, are some of the challenges that are going to be thrown up. Going back to your point, Joseph, as you were just saying about the way that we think about the energy transition is definitely being changed by the current energy crisis. And that clearly creates some big issues for international climate policy and the way these negotiations are going to go at COP27. I was wondering, Samantha, perhaps you could kick us off. I mean, just to, before we get on to talking about COP27, um, fill us in maybe on a little bit of the background of COP26. What was the, the readout on that? Was that considered to have been a successful meeting? What was achieved there? In general, COP26 at Glasgow was considered to be a successful meeting. This was, because of the delay in COVID, this was considered the five-year mark after the Paris Agreement when countries were required to bring in new climate goals called nationally determined contributions, which is what each country brings to the table under the terms of the Paris Agreement in terms of what it will do, its own reduction spending, how it plans to reduce emissions, um, adaptation efforts, et cetera. And by and large, the meeting was successful. I feel like countries brought more um, ambitious goals. The United States under the Biden administration did manage to bring a more ambitious goal in particular. I was in Europe at that time and definitely got the impression that the United States goal needed to start with a five. And so when President Biden showed up and, and he announced in advance that the U.S. NDC would be a 50 to 52 percent reduction off of 2005 levels. That was a, a real moment of optimism and showing that the U.S. was back in the game. However, the downside of that COP is that we realized that the world still isn't on a pathway to limit global warming to one and a half degrees C. Since the Paris Agreement, that one and a half degrees C goal has gotten more important and scientists are showing that it is important to keep temperature down to that level as opposed to the two degrees that was focused on in Paris. And so the world still has a ways to go to get on a two degree pathway, let alone a one and a half degree pathway. And since COP26, in that intervening year, we've moved even further away from that pathway, surely, right? We, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've had energy prices soaring around the world. In particular, we've had natural gas prices rising globally which is encouraged to shift back to coal in many parts of the world, particularly in Asia and in, in some European countries as well. So things have got more difficult, haven't they? I think they have gotten more challenging. Many countries, many places, Europe in particular, was viewing natural gas as a bridge to a renewable future. And in Europe, the Russians blew up the bridge. For that reason, you're seeing um, Europeans go back to using coal for power and try to find ways to replace natural gas any way they can because their supply is down so much. So, Joseph, what are your expectations for COP27 then? Do you think it's going to be a difficult meeting? I think it will uh, present real challenges and sort of new versions of old challenges. 
before I get that, I, I do think it's actually, I don't know if the events of the last year have really set us back. I think the jury is still out on that question, right? If you talk to European policymakers, the new energy security imperative that they feel to get off of Russian gas, to use less Russian oil, are driving them toward decarbonization and, and aligning their national security strategies with their climate strategy in a way that I don't think was true before. Right? You, would, you would have heard people say like, oh, yes, well, we're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We're going to build out these renewables. That's going to make us more resilient. And we're going to rely less on, on these amorphous global supply chains. Now they really want to rely less on global supply chains. And it's forcing conversations around permitting and siting and how you finance and build a renewable economy in Europe that I think is still underappreciated. Whether that reverberates globally, whether that allows the U.S. or other developed countries to change our practices is an open question. I think we want to be a little cautious about mistaking the choices that countries are making right now in the short term with the long-term energy planning that they're using to, to accomplish climate goals. Right. Now, that is a great point, and, and I accept that. Question then, how does that affect Sharm el-Sheikh? What's going to happen at COP27 and, and the discussions there? I think that the main challenge that we're going to see or that I'm watching for, and hopefully we can find ways to resolve, is a um, real sense of insecurity and disappointment on the part of developing countries and emerging economies. So what happens in the, over the last year? Well, gas trade between Russia and Europe functionally shuts off. Unlike oil, that gas doesn't go other places, right? It's, it gets shut in because there isn't the export or trade capacity on the liquefied natural gas side that we have for oil. So it's lost. And that means that the market has gotten really, really tight for LNG around the world, elevating energy costs, causing real energy crises in Pakistan and other countries. And for the time being, Europe can afford sky-high energy prices that other countries cannot. I think that COP is going to be the first time we sort of globally realize the, the pain that is being caused by this energy crisis, not just in Europe, but around the world. And the thing that diplomats should try to avoid is taking that pain out on the climate processes, because a lot of the discussions that had to happen this year anyway were about access to climate finance in emerging markets. They were about loss and damage for his, the, you know, the, the rectification of damages from climate change that come from historical emissions. There are all these debates between developing and developed countries about how we share the burden of decarbonization. And now energy prices have to be in the mix. I completely agree with what Joe is saying. And loss and damage and financing for developing nations has been real sticking points in, in COPs going back to the very beginning. And I think this is going to be more challenging now, particularly because we're in an inflationary environment. We're in an environment with a lot of uncertainty. And we're also seeing supply chain challenges in many of the products and services that, that we need to move along the energy transition. So I think the ambition is still there, but there are definitely some external and macroeconomic conditions that are making those thorny issues even more difficult at this moment. Presumably it's particularly hard to see rich countries being ready to provide more financing for the energy transition in poorer countries because a lot of them have got huge demands on their own resources right now because of the sky-high cost of energy. We're having European countries in aggregate, spending literally hundreds of billions of euros on bailing out their own energy consumers, putting their uh, economies under great strain because they're doing that. As you say, the poorer countries come to COP negotiations and say, 
it's very unfair to make us pay the price of sorting out this problem. This is not a problem that we created. This is a problem which until now has been created largely by the rich countries that have been putting the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and have been benefiting from being able to do that to grow their economies. So there has to be some global equity in the process of the transition to reduce emissions. It just doesn't feel like this is going to be a message which is going to find a very receptive audience this years of all years. Fair? Yes, absolutely fair. I mean, it is true that the wealthy world has a moral obligation to help the developing world with this, and that the wealthy world did create the problem. But this is a particularly difficult moment as um, economies are potentially headed into recession. And especially in Europe, budgets are just being blown by dealing with the very high energy prices. It's a tough moment for the, the kind of decisions that folks are looking for at this particular COP. I mean, the only thing I would add is that um, even in the U.S. context, right, with the IRA, the U.S. now comes to COP with a plan to reduce emissions. You know, will it get us all the way to the president's goal of 50% emissions reductions? Probably not. Um, but is it is it a real substantial set of investments? Yes. But if you're on the other side of the of the table, you might look at that and say $380 billion to reduce U.S. emissions, less than 10% about over what they would have been reduced anyway. And we can't get $100 billion to climate finance here uh, through the U.N. process. You could see why that causes frustration. The thing that, that we want to avoid is that that breaks down talks and doesn't create opportunity for focusing on how do we actually mobilize finance through mechanisms that were created at COP26, have been developed over the ensuing year. And, and I think that one thing that will be important is highlighting and understanding where those kind of micro policy experiments are succeeding as opposed to what's the top level conversation. There was a very interesting story that was um, doing the rounds in the British press over the past week, which I thought was quite telling about our new king, King Charles III, is, of course, famously very um, a committed environmentalist, very interested in climate change in particular. And he had wanted to go to COP27 and was saying he should go as the new king of the UK, give a speech, kind of talk about the importance of climate action. And if the stories are to be believed, I have no inside knowledge on this, don't know if it's true or not, but this is what people are reporting. He's been banned from doing that by the government. Again, new prime minister of the UK, Liz Truss, and she has said to him, no, we don't want you doing that, even though the UK is ostensibly absolutely signed up to a net zero goal by 2050, is absolutely uh, enthusiastic and supportive of the UNFCCC process and so on. Apparently, there is enough sensitivity there in particular because of some of these economic issues we've been talking about at the moment, that the government doesn't want the king to be seen to be perhaps over-promising, over-committing the country to climate action, and would rather he kept quiet on the subject. And obviously, given the, the constitutional monarchy and the way things work in the UK, if the, the king and the prime minister have a disagreement, it's the king who has to give way. And that struck me as quite a telling indicator of general sort of nervousness, as they even among some countries that have been essentially kind of bought into the process of moving towards net zero, even there, you're seeing them being careful and wanting to be cautious about what they say. It's got nothing to do with energy policy, but it truly is hard to be king. <laughs> 
I feel like citizens in the UK may be getting a taste of what it feels like to be American with their policy changing um, significantly with administrations. And another challenge on, on getting that financing for the developing world here in the United States anyway, is that many Americans think that our government spends orders of magnitude more than it actually does on foreign aid. They think that foreign aid is a large portion of our budget when it's actually a tiny fraction. And so as Americans are hurting, as we're dealing with inflation and potentially a recession, um, it's even more unpopular than ever, even though it's a much a smaller part of the federal budget than people understand. So question, given all these challenges and difficulties that people are facing around the world and that the COP UNFCCC process is facing, what does a good outcome look like for COP27? If I think November the 18th is the last day if we are discussing the progress of the talks at this point and are thinking, okay, that was not as bad as it could have been, you know, maybe we've made some actual progress, at least things haven't slipped back, what would you be looking out for? In terms of a primary agreement, I expect to see a lot of scene setting rather than a lot of progress. But I don't actually think that that's bad, right? Coming out of the signing of the Paris Agreement, the establishment of the rulebook for the UNFCCC's implementation of the Paris Agreement, at Glasgow, we sort of enter this new phase, right? So the, the, the presidency is in Egypt and they, they published this essay about this being the time of implementation. And the time of implementation is like you sort of have to restart the conversation around some of the stuff that we've been talking about, right? We know these are residual issues. They're ongoing, they're ongoing discussions about it. So I think like in the formalized process, scene setting being the thing that happens is like not necessarily bad or against the structure of how this process is supposed to work. The thing I'm watching for in terms of success is like COP has become this like big climate confab, right? That that's where governments will go to announce multilateral new initiatives. That's where public and private partnerships are often announced around achieving decarbonization. And so really watching what agglomerates around the UNFCCC negotiations is I think the place we should be looking for, for indicators of like positive storylines, for success, for models of achieving decarbonization that are actually working. And then we need to figure out how, to, how do we keep scaling them. Yeah, I think the most important thing out of this COP is, is that we don't move the ball backwards. I agree with everything that Joe has said. And I like the idea that we're actually bringing energy security into the discussion. Many of the things that the world is trying to do right now are not just good for climate, they're good for long-term energy security. And so maybe this turns into the energy security cup. Maybe we bring additional people into the, the climate change tent by emphasizing the security benefits as well as the climate benefits. But like Joe, I'm not super worried about the official communique that comes out of the COP and more concerned that people there meet, they come up with multilateral and bilateral and public-private partnerships and all the things that people do when they come together. The overall COP process, because it is so based on consensus, can be very slow and a bit behind the times. And so I'm actually more concerned with these, these side agreements and the other thing that, that happens while these people are all in the same space than I am with the COP communique itself. Yeah. And I would say that the one, one last comment is like, everyone knows that we're in this profound energy crisis and it does create real challenges for COP negotiations. I think it dissuades, whether it's the king from attending or from you know countries leaning into multilateral new partnerships, it, it will have a damping effect. But I think it's also important to remember that 
the energy crisis we're experiencing now is not an energy transition story. And energy transition provides a pathway to diversifying the energy system and preventing future crises like this, not eliminating them entirely, but reducing the risks that they will occur. Sorry, to be clear what you're saying there, you're saying the energy crisis is not an energy transition story. You mean the energy crisis is not being caused by getting on the transition? Exactly, right. Like yeah. poor planning for energy transition is not putting us in the position that we were into today. Not at all. Maybe a bit. <laughs> I don't know. Different people can have different opinions, I guess, on this. I mean, it feels like, well, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one thing that seems to me to be entirely uncontroversial or should be uncontroversial, uh, which is that the transition understood as a transition away from nuclear power has definitely contributed to the bad uh, situation that Europe's in right now. And that seems to be something where, um, I mean, as you say, it's not really anything to do with climate or climate policy, because obviously it, it has... Uh, adverse uh, impacts in terms of driving up emissions if you shut down nuclear power plants. But that has been something which has unquestionably been a bad energy policy choice that has made Europe more vulnerable to the crisis that it's in right now. Having spent time in Germany and talked to folks about the, the politics and public opinion around that decision, it is difficult to understand from the outside. But when you speak to folks in German politics, that was really unavoidable. And so it's it looks bad now, but I'm not sure what they really could have done about that decision, given the strong opinions of the German public. Right. And like, in, I think if I was going to say, well, you know, what, what could you have done better? Right. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback when Putin starts a war in Ukraine and ends gas trade between Russia and Europe. But, you know, the idea that you're going to have an energy transition that's enabled by cheap access to Russian pipeline gas is maybe is like strategically in hindsight looks like a poor decision. And there were folks in the United States and in Europe saying we should we should think more carefully about having a hedged strategy. But it, it is not a story where the energy crisis is principally being driven by like overinvestment in renewables and, and, a, and a collapsing of the fossil economy or something like that. That's that's not what's going on. This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by Atachi Energy. If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out Itachi Energy's own podcast, Power Pulse, where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems to advance a sustainable energy future for all. Recent episodes focus on opportunities for offshore wind in the U.S., the unique contributions of women to the energy industry, and the challenge of meeting EV fleet charging demand. Visit us at itachienergy.com backslash Power Pulse. So we've just been quite uh, gloomy, perhaps maybe gloomy is too strong a word, certainly cautious about international climate policy and climate action. There has been what I think it's fair to say is some absolutely unalloyed good news on the climate front uh, in the US, which has been the decision by the US Senate to ratify the Kigali Amendment, which is something that they have been sitting on chewing over, debating for many years, have finally got round to uh, voting in favour of it and voting in favour of it with a, a pretty significant majority. Now, I think there will be a lot of people listening who will be thinking, what is the Kigali Amendment? Sounds pretty niche. Why is it important? I mean, Samantha, could you just explain a bit about it? I mean, I think it's really interesting. It's worth talking about. And it is actually a pretty significant development, but it is somewhat uh, complicated, I think. Do you want to walk us through it a bit? 
Sure, I simplify it as best I can. So if we think back um, to the Montreal Protocol, which was a really successful international agreement to deal with ozone depleting substances and the ozone hole that we heard so much about in earlier years. But the problem is that the chemicals that were put in place to replace the ozone depleting chemicals sadly turned out to be very potent greenhouse gases. And so the Kigali amendments to the Montreal Protocol are designed to phase out those very potent greenhouse gases and replace them with something that not only doesn't harm the ozone layer, but that also doesn't cause global warming. The chemicals that are being regulated by the Kigali Protocol are much more potent than CO2 as greenhouse gases, from 1,000 to as much as 10,000 times that of CO2. So even though they're released in quite small quantities, they're incredibly important greenhouse gases. And the fact that the U.S. Senate has signed on to a treaty that basically regulates greenhouse gases is just astonishing. It's such good news. But the politics of it were very unusual and bipartisan, and it's just great to see it finally pass. Because it's been a very long time, right? The actual Kigali Amendment was signed in Kigali, obviously, in 2016, right? So it's been six years that the U.S. Senate has been sitting on this? Why has it taken so long? Well, I think during the Trump administration, it was difficult to get anything through that had the word climate in it, frankly. But the thing that pushed it through now is that this is really an innovation question and a question of maintaining access to global markets for U.S. industry. Um, the world is still working out alternatives for, for different chemicals to replace HFCs. But this is exactly what the United States is good at. This is an innovation issue. And so it makes sense for us to sign on, to maintain our access to markets, and also to demonstrate the innovation advantages that we have here in the U.S. So once we got through the, the opposition at the top, I think it became clear to a lot of folks in the Senate that this was the right thing to do for the U.S. So Joseph, what do you think of this? Significant development? Yeah, this is exactly how it is supposed to happen, right? Diplomats go out, create a set of pledges uh, that works for, for the global community. We come back, the United States Senate, in its great deliberative power, takes a few years. Eventually, the United States passes a, a regulation saying, here's how, uh, in this case, the Environmental Protection Agency is going to create uh, mechanisms to achieve the goals of the Kigali Amendment from the U.S. perspective. And then we can ratify a treaty. This is like, this is textbook propagation of international environmental policy. Very encouraging to see that it was supported on a bipartisan basis. And I think we should use it as a model to think through how can we accomplish other things. As Samantha says, this was, uh, if you look at like statements for why senators supported this amendment, why they supported the underlying regulation in the United States, it's about market access. We're transitioning to a state where uh, markets around the world are growing larger and the U.S. wants to shift its role in the global economy to be part of a more open system. You don't always see that in political rhetoric, but that's an understood necessary thing. And the world wants products that aren't going to ruin the climate. And there's a competitive advantage to being on the forefront of, of creating them. Now, is that going to apply to a national carbon price and, and, and binding emissions reduction pledges from around the world? Probably not, but we should think through where it may apply in other contexts, other sectors or, or other pieces of the climate and energy challenge. It does strike me also as quite funny in terms of the climate debate. Sometimes if you talk to people who you know, don't really follow the science, don't really follow the debate very closely, people say, well, no, you're telling us now that um, 
climate change is this big threat. It's always something new. You know, back in the 70s, yeah, everyone went on about the hole in the ozone layer. And and now we don't hear about that anymore. So why is that? And you know, now you're having to uh, you know, create uh, climate change as something we should all be scared of without acknowledging that actually the hole in the ozone layer was a real threat in the 70s. And it got fixed by international action. And actually, if you're looking for models of ways that the world can come together and achieve positive goals and head off really serious environmental threats. Actually, that Montreal Protocol is a very good example of that, an example of a success story, a real success story in international policymaking. And as you say, then now, which has sort of been refined now, we realize we do have to worry about other things. And by fixing one problem, or by fixing the ozone problem, we made the global warming problem worse, but we have ways to tackle that as well. So uh, two notes led on the United States side by Ronald Reagan and George Shultz. Right, that key indicator that uh, we don't always have progress on these issues is not doesn't have to be belong to one party here in the United States. And also, I think like you know the structure is very important. It has uh, focused timelines. It has a lot of opportunity for interaction and co-working between governments and private industry. And we should think about how that model applies to other places. Yeah, the Montreal Protocol is really the model for how the world can come together to deal with an environmental problem. And it also reminds me that as we focus on environmental issues, we need to not just focus on upcoming catastrophes, but also focus on the wins that we have had. This demonstrates that the world can fix problems. And I think that's a really important thing to remember right now as we face a problem that's more deeply rooted in our economy, in our energy system and climate change. Indeed. As you say, great to be able to talk about some good news for change. Though, Unfortunately, I think we do have to come back to the darker backdrop of the energy crisis and the way that's overshadowing things at the moment. Because there's one other thing I'm particularly keen to talk about in this episode, which is the question of tension between the rest of the world and Russia over Russia's income from its energy exports. And a big story at the moment is this question of a price cap on exports of Russian oil with the idea of squeezing the amount of money that Russia can make from its oil exports. Now, this is something I found very difficult to get my head around, I have to admit. And I think I've kind of got it straight now, but I'm going to be interested to hear your thoughts and be good to kind of talk about it. It seems like it's quite a stretch as an idea to work out how you can cap the price of oil in the market. There was a great line, actually, I was just reading the Financial Times this morning, and they've described this idea as one of the most novel international economic policy experiments ever attempted, which I think seems about right. It is certainly, it's an unusual move here that the, the US government is pursuing. I've said the US government's pursuing it because they've very much been making the running on it. It seems like a US government initiative, but they have got buy-in from the rest of the G7 countries. So the rest of the leading developed economies also say they support it. What they don't have, crucially, is buy-in from other big oil-consuming countries like China, world's number one oil importer, India, and so on. And I think that's pretty critical. It's a complex idea, needs a bit of explanation, I think. I mean, uh, Joseph, maybe start with you on this. So what's your thinking? What do you understand is actually being proposed, and how might it work? So you're right. It's an incredible experiment. You have to think if this was something that was entirely possible, oil-consuming countries would have liked to install an oil price cap long ago. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but as I read it, there's sort of two goals here overall. Number one, reduce the amount of revenue that Russia gets from exporting oil into international markets 
which is the primary source of rents in the country and funds the funds the war machine that is currently being used to create atrocity in Ukraine. Number two, accomplish number one without destroying the international economic order. Russia is one of the largest exporters of oil into international markets. We've just experienced really high oil prices, not on the restriction necessarily of Russian oil, but just on the concern that it would go away. And so you need to accomplish that revenue reduction without causing even more havoc in international energy markets is what the Treasury is trying to do. Now, the background here is not no policy either. Bear in mind that starting in December and concluding in January, European countries have set up an uh, import ban on first Russian crude and then Russian oil products with some small exceptions, and are going to bar companies that would ship or insure Russian exports from doing so. And so the, as I perceive it, what the Treasury is trying to do is accomplish those two highlight goals with a mechanism that they think is less threatening to uh, global supply than what Europe is already moving forward with. It's going to be challenging to implement. It will probably only partially work uh, in terms of reducing revenue. But their view is it reduces the risk of limiting global supply in a way that's going to harm everybody else. Right. Because as you've been suggesting, there's a real law of unintended consequences in operation here, right? Which is that the sanctions that have been imposed so far have not actually particularly restricted Russian oil exports, which are still kind of coming onto the world market in about the same volumes as before, because uh, you can find buyers for oil in many different parts of the world and many different countries that don't really want to go along with Western sanctions are still very happy to buy Russian oil, particularly as it's often being sold at a discount. So the oil is still there, and yet just announcing the sanctions has driven the price up, which means uh, Russia's getting a good price for its oil, even if it's below the kind of prevailing global market price. And so oil revenues have been pouring into Russia. We've seen uh, the ruble being very strong. It feels like, although Russia is absolutely constrained by sanctions in some ways, the energy sanctions are not really working at all to choke off Russian revenues. In this new plan, is there anything that would give you any confidence that this would be more effective than what we've seen so far? Well, bear in mind, you're creating a more severe set of, set of restrictions um, than what we've had, but less severe than what we might have because of these shipping bans and other things, right? And will it work uh, is a question of, that has kind of a couple elements to it. The first is, how does Russia respond? I think like set aside economic interest and just talk about the politics. I think that there's a real risk that this is, you know, the, the response would be we're, we're going to withdraw volumes off of the global market. We'll shoot, you know, we don't need to sell to you. There's a secondary question of, you know, how do, how do other countries that aren't on board with the oil price cap respond? Are they going to cooperate? Uh, will they not? You know, there, there are reasons why you would think China and India would be very happy to accept oil price cap, oil price caps, right? Buy at low prices, but that's not necessarily going to be the case. And then, you know, how do you enforce this thing? I think Treasury, from my communication and from what I've seen from them, they understand that this is oil markets are like really hard to grapple and control, right? They're big. They there's a lot of places that oil can flow to. Gets mixed up with like 
like literal liquid from one place gets mixed with liquid from another place and tagged another way. And so the the idea that you can really create these kinds of controls when you're setting up a huge arbitrage opportunity, I think is like that's there's just going to be a big implementation challenge there. And then the last one relates to energy security overall. And it's like, we just don't know what a world looks like where you've got multiple oil prices floating all around, what that does to the investment picture, what that does to consumer prices. I think that stuff is going to be very hard to track. Do I think it's possible that it reduces revenue? Yes, but I think it's going to be really challenging to do. And I, and I don't know that it's going to do that. Yeah, just to add my two cents, this is a really interesting policy in that the world wants Russia's oil. It's very unlike oil sanctions that we've put on the market before, where we've said we don't want to buy this country's oil. The global economy needs Russian oil. So we want their oil. We just don't want them to make any money off of it to fund the war in Ukraine. And it, we've never tried this anything like this before. So it looks elegant on its face, but the devil is definitely in the details. And I think one of the more devilish details is how Putin will respond. When you hear folks at U.S. Treasury talk about this policy, they say that they will set the price cap such that it makes more sense for Russia to sell the oil than to shut it in. But that's assuming a lot of very rational economic behavior out of President Putin. And I would argue that, that rational behavior has been in short supply from the Russian leader in the past few months, um, given everything that we've seen happen. And so I wouldn't count on him behaving rationally. Um, he could certainly cut his own production, even though it would lower his revenues just to try to sweat out the West, similar to what he is doing with gas markets in Europe right now. He could also cut off access to pipelines for other producers that use Russian pipelines, such as Kazakhstan, which would further reduce the supply on the market. And I've also heard the argument frequently that the Russians would damage their old fields by shutting in and that they really can't shut in this oil without harming their future production. But others have argued, to me at least, that if you do this in an organized fashion and really think about the engineering of it, that the Russians could shut in some of these fields without damaging their future production. And if they think that they can shut them in and sweat out the West um, before they start damaging their fields, that might look like a logical move for President Putin. The other thing that I would say is I don't think anyone at Treasury expects the cap to be airtight. I have heard arguments that it's not going to work perfectly. They don't plan on using any secondary sanctions to enforce it. And so the enforcement mechanisms are, are largely pretty fuzzy and voluntary. But if it lowers Russian revenues at all, then it's been somewhat successful. But I worry about Putin's potential reaction versus the, the change in rough Russian revenues that we could get. And I worry about the risks being a bit larger than the potential benefits. Okay, so I have two cynical thoughts on this whole exercise. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on whether you think there's anything in them. Cynical thought number one is that this is something which sounds great politically. You're saying we're going to put a cap on the price of Russian oil. We're not going to pay any more than X price, you know, $50 a barrel or whatever it is for Russian oil. It sounds great, but doesn't in, in fact end up having very much of an effect because there are plenty of other countries in the world that are not bought into this cap and will be prepared to pay more because they want to get the barrels. And even if they're paying over the cap, they still need the oil to keep their economies going, and so they will do that. 
Um, and particularly if Russian oil is priced at a lower price than you can imagine the Russian Russian oil might be at a lower price than the prevailing global market price, but still at a higher price than the cap. And that is a price that people would be prepared to pay. So as I say, I wonder how much kind of political theater there is in this. Second cynical thought, which is sort of related, is that I wonder to what extent this is actually kind of cover for loosening the sanctions on Russian oil relative to what had been already announced. And just going back, uh, Joseph, to what you were talking about in terms of things which are kind of going to be coming in, in terms of sanctions on shipping and insurance and so on, which will make it very, very difficult for anyone to transport Russian oil around the world. Arguably, those sanctions would have a much greater impact on Russian exports than the things we've seen so far. But as we've been discussing, the world needs Russian oil to keep running. And so your solution is to say, well, actually, we're going to create loopholes to those sanctions on insurance and shipping and so on. And the cover, the fig leaf that we put on this loosening the sanctions is to say, oh, there's the price cap and that'll kind of have the effect and then it'll allow this oil to continue to flow and there's a price cap there. So everything's fine, even if a lot of people are not actually uh, sticking to the price cap. As I say, so those are two cynical explanations. Do you think uh, there's anything in either of those? What's interesting to me is your cynical explanations run up counter each other. Right. True, so on the true. one hand, these sort of market interventions aren't going to make a difference because for all the challenges we've highlighted, right? Third countries that don't participate, the amorphous and untraceable nature of a lot of the oil of the, a lot of the oil supply chain, um, the fact that you know shipping insurance companies can can exist outside Lloyd's of London, right, and and are being stood up around the world as we speak. So the idea that well we're going to do this, it's a political symbol, but it doesn't really have huge market effects to me doesn't quite hold water because the stronger version which is the source of your second set of cynicism, which is the outright ban of shipping services or other logistical services, I think really did create concern amongst members of the members of governments as well as uh, traders and industry people that the, the just the frictional cost of such an immediate ban would cause instability in the market, would take things offline, and and would have profound economic impact. So it's sort of like this is the this is like the muddy waters of public policymaking and market intervention, right? It's like, does it do nothing or is it potentially a catastrophe? And how do we <laughs> and how do governments try and thread the needle between those two? Yeah, and Ed, I'll take your cynicism and add a little bit. I agree with what everything that Joe has said, and I'll even add that you have to think about this from the public point of view. And the public does not understand how incredibly binding those shipping and insurance and financing regulations and sanctions could be. However, the idea of a cap on the price is very easy to understand. And so this has the advantage of potentially loosening the sanctions that the European Union is scheduling for December and January, while actually sounding really tough to the American public and to others. And so that, that might be an extra dose of cynicism that some of this is intended for public consumption to show the public that the government is doing something about high prices in Russia. And interestingly, one of the things that goes unremarked throughout a lot of this is like demand side management works too. The Biden administration will talk about that in the context of vehicle electrification and other things. As you pointed out, Ed, the challenge is 
You can sell moderately less at much higher prices and do better. One of the ways that energy prices uh, can go down is is on the demand response side. Now, maybe we'll, we're seeing prices drop because of broader macroeconomic conditions, but but there's been very little political attempt to to work on the demand side, at least in the United States, uh, if not in Europe. Yeah, that's something I agree with really strongly. As you say, to your point about the the dilemma between doing nothing and causing catastrophe, there's a way to get out of that box, actually, which is to stop using oil. And that ultimately has to be the solution. But until you've done that, you are stuck in this box. Yeah. Yeah, or ramp up production from other places. But that's, as we know, just a slow process. Yeah, so is the demand response. All all of these things take time, unfortunately. And, and we're stuck with both the supply crunch and Russia's actions right now, unfortunately. So time, unfortunately, is also what we are short of here on this show. We're going to have to leave it soon. But before we do, uh, I wanted to get your free electrons, the tradition we have here of uh, things you've brought in that are kind of personal to you. Um, uh, Joseph, what have you got? Sure. What are you thinking about? So over the past weekend, I traveled to California for a family member's wedding. And this is entirely a first world problem. So ignoring the first part of our conversation today. Um, I was renting a, I was using my credit card points to, uh, to rent a vehicle and I was thinking, oh man, I'm going to a wedding in California. I'm going to Hertz. I've been watching all these Hertz commercials about their new Tesla fleet. I was like, I'm going to rent a Tesla. I'm just going to like flex on them a little bit when I roll up to this wedding in Northern California. And, um, the credit card that I use doesn't insure Tesla's in the same way that it would insure other car rentals because it's kind of amongst the class of what they deem as high value um, vehicles. And I've looked for an explanation of why that might be uh, for my free electron. I couldn't quite find it, but it did highlight for me that, you know, as we think about these transitions, a lot of the infrastructure for how people use stuff or how you can uh, avail yourself to services are going to have to be, are going to have to change to accommodate new technologies. That is very interesting. Is it something to do with cost of repairs or of maintenance? Of course, it seems to be the case that maintaining an EV is generally a lot lower co- cost than it is for an internal combustion engine car. But yeah, so this, I mean, my this is liability insurance, so it probably yeah. does have something to do with the cost of repair. Uh, I could I I could venture guesses, like maybe there's there's not that much third party uh, repair services available. Um, we'll have to see as other electric vehicles start to enter the rental fleet. To what extent you're able to uh, to get those with the uh, you know kind of standard credit card insurance, but yeah, that is really interesting though. And as you say, just an example of the way that that shift from uh, internal combustion engine to EVs is a whole kind of massive shift in an in an ecosystem of everything that goes with the vehicle. It's not just about changing the vehicle, and that is something which you're then reproducing over and over again with every different technology that changes. It's a uh, a reminder, I guess, of just the, the scale of what lies ahead of us. Yeah. Uh, Samantha, what's yours? So I, like many people, I've been watching with, with horror the, the outcomes of recent hurricanes. We've seen the entire islands of Puerto Rico and Cuba lose power in the past couple of weeks. And additionally, more than two and a half million people um, in Florida lost power due to Hurricane Ian. And another first world problem, kind of like Joe, I I experienced my own issue of uh, starting a power system up from zero. I own a house in Baja California in Mexico and Hurricane Kay took out my power about three weeks ago. 
I accidentally ran my battery back up to zero, and I learned the hard way that a cold start of a power system can, can be very difficult. It uh, took me about a day and a half with no power to get a technician out there, even though the sun was back out again, to teach me how to cold start my power system, how to reset my batteries and my inverter, and even get my backup power going again. And so um, I'm glad I learned something that day. Um, that my, my solar backup system didn't help me that particular time, but now I know how to fix it. But I'd also just like to add to my, my little small first world story, just a lot of support to those affected by the hurricanes and especially for all the engineers and the technicians working to bring a power system back from zero. Because my example is a tiny one, but we know that that can be complicated and difficult. Yeah, it is kind of awe-inspiring, isn't it? The the efforts that people make and, and the, the work that's done to put the grid back up again. Yeah, and how quickly it can go. Yeah, and how central it is to everything. I remember someone once describing it as a miracle of the modern world. And it really is, isn't it, in terms of the complexity of the, the operations of the grid and how essential it is to all of our lives. And yeah, as you say, that's been a real uh, reminder of that over the past couple of weeks. So um, my free electron is something I am being, I've been fascinated by, which is this um, mission. It's called the DART. Now I need to check what it stands for. The Double Asteroid Redirection Test. This is the thing, the NASA mission you may have seen where they crashed a spaceship, uh, a little spacecraft, into um, an asteroid in order to practice for what they might need to do to divert an asteroid that was coming to Earth and could cause massive damage. It's incredible technological feat, really, really impressive what they did. This thing flew for 10 months. I think it was uh, uh, 7 million miles uh, it flew, and it hit a target 500 feet across. Um, so it's just kind of you know, breathtaking the way they've managed to do that. And um, it struck me as really uh, interesting also in the context of everything we've been talking about in terms of climate policy and the effort on climate change. I had a conversation really stuck with me about um, 15, maybe 20 years ago, even with a sort of a climate skeptic, not someone who sort of denied the science, but someone who was saying, oh, you know, there's nothing we really need to worry about. We don't need to take action on climate change. And he was saying, he was making the actually very, um, you know, solidly founded point that there's a lot of uncertainty in climate science. He was saying there's uncertainty both between, in the connection between concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and how much warming we get, and even more so between the amount of warming we get and what happens in terms of consequences in, you know, in terms of weather effects, hurricanes, droughts, sea level rise, all of those things. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty about how much damage uh, rising temperatures uh, will do. To which I replied to him, well, you know, fine, but that's not good news. Actually, if there's uncertainty here, and there's just one planet that we live on, which is kind of important to us, the idea that um, we're taking risks that we don't really know how serious they are, that doesn't seem like a great argument for doing nothing. That actually seems like an argument for taking action in order to reduce those risks so we don't find out potentially what these very serious impacts are going to be. To which he said to me, oh, but you know, uh, in that case, if there's any risk where we don't know how great it is, uh, we should be taking action about it. Like we don't know how likely the Earth is to be hit by a massive asteroid like one that wiped out the dinosaurs. So 
you can't just take action for any risk just because you don't understand exactly how great it is. And here we are. We are actually taking action. And there's going to be a uh, system, a new space telescope put up, I think, by 2026 is going to be there to detect asteroids that might be approaching Earth, um, objects that might be hazardous to us. And we are developing these systems in order to be able to deflect uh, these objects from our path. We are taking action on that risk, even though we don't really have a good handle on exactly how great the risk is. And I have to say, I'm very pleased about that. I think it's extremely important to be taking those kind of actions. I think that the low probability, uncertain probability, high impact event is absolutely something we should be worried about. And it very much justifies an effort to address it. So as I say, I thought that was an interesting parallel there between what NASA's doing and what we talk about all the time here on the Energy Gang. It's all about the management of large, non-diversifiable risks. Exactly. S small probability, high impact. Yeah, absolutely. And non-diversifiable, as you say, uh, Joseph, that's a pretty crucial question. Until uh, the evacuation to Mars is a viable prospect, then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite... Uh, anecdote was from apparently somebody in the control room was overheard yelling that one was for t-rex um, <laughs> that's a great line yeah. now i was laughing and thinking <laughs> thinking of the dart reference and that and that i i can't even throw a bullseye when i need to so clearly i i shouldn't work at nasa yeah no, it's so impressive isn't it it's really a, it's an amazing thing that they've done with it yeah, definitely interesting to see how that, that system develops. So, look, unfortunately, we do uh, have to leave it there, but thank you very much indeed, Joseph. Great to see you, Ed. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Samantha, for joining us for the first time. Hope very much we can have you back again soon. Definitely. We should do this more often. It's been fun. Indeed it has. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Uh, thank you to our producers, Shakira Perez and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And most of all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As ever, we're keen to hear what you think. Please do give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. We're on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.